You're listening to an Mpavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Um, thanks for coming out. I was worried it would just be me um, because there was that little bit of rain just about when you're about to actually go and you, most of you were... I was thinking, fuck, maybe I, I won't do this tonight. <laughs> anyway, thanks very much for coming and I see my students. High distinctions. Don't worry about it. <laughs> just joking. Um, so welcome to Floppy Architecture. What a perfect setting for this talk. Um, such a great example of floppiness. Uh, my name is Dr Leanne Zilker and I'm an academic at the School of um, RMIT, um, School of Architecture at RMIT University. And I'm also a practicing architect under Zilker Studio. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the people of the Eastern Kulin Nations as the traditional custodians on, of the land on which we meet. I pay our respects to the land, their ancestors, past, present and emerging. So to begin with, I'd like to explain why I use the term floppy. It's not very architectural. We like to say things that are, you know, architects like to use terms like um, load-bearing, um, you know, we, we, we talk about spans, we use columns, we have concrete, we have reinforced steel. So it's really not an architectural term. And I like that because it, it, it shakes you up a bit because you're sort of searching and thinking, what the hell is she talking about? And it also allows us to look at other disciplines who are really terrific at dealing with floppy. And those are fashion and textile design. So, um, and it's all in an effort to look at different ways of building architecture, of making architecture, of fabricating architecture, so that we can look at lightweight structures, such as the one that you're sitting under, that does a little bit more than what we're used to seeing with fabrics in architecture. Sunshade materials that are really there to um, span as far, as far as they can with as little um, connection or support as possible. If you actually also go up close to these materials, they're pretty unfriendly. They're not really that great to touch. They don't drape. Um, and so they've been petrified in a way. So, there must, so I just think there must be a better way of dealing with these, um, with these materials and also looking at lightweight fabrics. So fashion and architecture have had a long relationship for a long time. The earliest shelters were um, actually woven uh, through materials found um, organically. From there, we also have the Jacquard loom, which was the first computer, which now architecture is very reliant on computers. So looking then at... So from that sort of early beginning, it's they've just diverged... Um, further and further apart. So going back into how clever fashion and textile are dealing with form, 
structure and skin, you can see sort of an example of that, which is corsetry. And corsetry has to deal with a body that's moving and it is looking at creating form or exaggerating form of the body. So I guess fashion has always dealt with this standard image or the standard set of forms, which is the body, and have been reinterpreting it um, over the centuries. So what's amazing about corsetry is its lightness and its idea of structure, which is lots of structure, but very fine structure. That's completely antithetical to how we normally deal with architecture. So when you're in a building, the, the main um, goal of the architect is to create large span and minimal impact into the space. So columns are on the periphery, they, they use the core for high-rise buildings, and so we try and minimise any structural impact into the space. So it's big, it's heavy, um, and it's trying to do a lot of things. If you start thinking about how fashion deals with structure, it's fine and there's lots of it. So it's in a way a feminisation of um, an idea around structure as well. Fashion is also brilliant at illusion. So this is um, some x-rays of Balenciaga gowns. And when you look at the gown, say the red gown, it looks like it's discreetly wrapped around this tiny little waist um, with a bow and there's a bulk of material. But actually, it's fairly complicated underneath that. You see boning, you see, again, um, a hoop structure that's holding out the form. And also, as simple as that, the peach coloured dress, there's a ton of stuff happening underneath. So, again, we can learn a lot from how we kind of dress a building. Other designers, um, such as this is um, Pierre Picciolini for Moncler, reinterpreting the, the height of the body. Or the, again, the form of the body is very different. Comme de Garçon, one of my favourites. These are very architectural interpretations of fashion because all their collections deal with the space between the body and the garment. So the bulking up, the expansive kind of wrapping of fabric and layering of fabric, again, is morphing the body. So similar in a way to the way corsetry behaves, this is a kind of contemporary interpretation of that. Um, and there's other ways of dealing with form. This is um, Craig Green and he's looking at uh, obviously exaggerating form and it's kind of a survival theme. So these are all super interesting ways of interpreting um, what the body, how their body appears. They even look at um, prefabrication. So this is Isamiyaki's APOC range, which comes off the knitting machine and has inbuilt seams. So you can buy a huge ream and then custom, mass customise it. So you can cut your socks at different heights. You can cut out a hat, cut out a jumper, cut out a bag. These are all concepts that architects deal with. We deal with prefabrication, but we don't deal with it, um, mass customization in, in a very easy way. So an example of how um, an architect has interpreted uh, fashion directly is Toyo Ito in the Brugge Pavilion. He was looking at lace, and lace is a really clever structure. 
It's an incredibly fine mesh that ha uses motifs to connect and give strength. So by looking at a very fine honeycomb um, aluminium structure and then overlaying these motifs that stiffen it. So we don't have triangulation um, appearing. We have it all embedded in the skin or the, the kind of thickness of the, the wall lining. So super clever. So when looking at fashion textiles, obviously we've got a scale issue. Um, we're not blowing up, you know, the body is a certain scale and buildings are obviously much larger. So um, now that we also have this new technology, we, the technology sort of pushes us into other disciplines more and more. In this, what you're looking at here is a range of um, fibres that are really strong. So carbon fibre, which you've, many of you know, it's in, used in planes. Um, it's a woven material that is, you know, can be seven times stronger than steel. Dyneema yarns. So I don't know if you can see, but the cabling um, that's um, connecting some of these elements are Dyneema yarns. They're also incredibly strong, but they're flexible. So uh, carbon fibre is brittle. It's a woven material, but Dyneema yarns can be knitted um, and looped around. So... With these advances, there's still a huge divide. Like, why can't we think about this lightweightness and utilise uh, these new materials and techniques in architecture? So I'm just going to show you um, a few projects uh, to hopefully show you the struggle that I'm kind of always in trying to translate the sort of fashion technique into architecture in order to gain the benefit. And again, I'm always talking about this structure, form and skin where it's coming together as one, not a sort of um, gridded way of dealing with um, support. So the first term that I've spent a ton of time dealing with is pleats. And pleating is a, it's a, an upholstery term that is used to describe the way a piece of fabric, a straight piece of fabric can form a curve. So it's made up of multiple uh, folds, but it's much more sophisticated than a fold. So a fold is a planar thing, doesn't really talk about how it turns a corner, that's a separate design exercise in itself. A pleat, however, is able to take um, a curved form. So on the left, you've got Iris van Herpen, who works very closely with a number of architects, and you can see how clever, I mean, that's actually a 3D print, but the idea is that it's a sort of movable object. Um, you can see how the, the pleat can actually exaggerate parts of the body, can take the form of a body. And on the right, you've got a double set of folds that is being held back with very fine fibre, but the texture and the compressi compressive nature of that pattern is pretty amazing. Fashion designers also use pleats to, to deal with the weight of a fabric. So if anyone's ever worn Isamiyaki's pleats, they fall quite heavily. Um, not heavily, but if, it, if you're playing with the material without the pleat, they're completely different weights. So just that simple technique transforms these materials. So one of the first projects 
uh, we looked at was dealing with an idea around this was a competition entry for the summer pavilion across the road and it was looking at deal, giving an alternative to kind of the sun umbrella. So you've got furling and unfurling of fabrics, you know, twisting around and trying to talk about the dimension of one length or one width of fabric that is kind of infinite. Um, so, yeah, providing a cover and a shelter using sunshade materials. And again, looking at illusion. So, obviously, the idea was it was supposed to look like it's coming out of one ream of material, but really it's two kind of basic um, pleated shapes that are interlocked uh, to give that illusion. Another project looking at pleats directly was a pleat pod, which is a, um, a meeting space at RMIT's design hub. And the design hub, I don't know if many of you have been there, it's open plan. It's actually been kind of hacked to death with different partitions, but the idea was to have private meeting space that had some acoustic properties, but not completely enclosed. So investigating pleats, these are all available on the internet. They're pretty simple to, I mean, they're, they're a little bit intricate to make, but they're pretty straightforward. Delving into that sort of world also explains, I guess, um, how different patterns or folding patterns cope with load uh, and span. So the first, the top one actually collapses under its any, any sort of weight. So in that case, that would be a system that would be spanning again between columns. It would need support. It, cannot, it can't really transfer um, the pressure of gravity. It just crushes. But the one underneath um, was a bit of an aha moment because it does. It's able to um, directly transfer the load path through the folds down to the ground. So once we sort of figured that that was the way to go, then it start, we started to, to, fold it, to fold it in different ways so that you could create enclosure, pushing it to its limit before it could tip over. So that's just cantilevering out of the floor. Um, and then it came down to, well, how do you develop a form from that? So one thing is to have the kind of structural system. And you can see in this case, it's the ultimate in the structure, form and skin. There's a blurring. You don't know actually where the structure is. It seems like it's all part of the skin. Um, and it's also able to adjust um, to different forms. So before we built a uh, full-scale model, we had Bollinger Groman, her um, engineers, model it to make sure. So physically the little models worked. They weren't falling down. Um, but it might be a different story once you're using heavy um, MDF. So they did an analysis and you can see that it's an equilibrium between the elements that are falling outwards, oops, and the elements that are leaning inwards. Um, and the compressive moments also add to the stability. So while we were building it, um, which I'll show you in a sec, 
it was quite difficult because it works as a whole. It doesn't work in parts. So um, I'll show you that in a sec. Uh, so the um, yeah, so the essence of it is this kind of acoustic felt by Ortex, an MDF um, CNC milled set of uh, triangular shapes that were numbered and then stuck together, and then an outer um, felt uh, fabric. And so here you can see the massive amounts of support needed because these were the elements that were falling backwards. Um, and, and in the centre, these ones were falling inwards. So you can't see behind there, but that those ones were kind of stable. So it just as you came to this part, it start, started to become unstable. So that's, that's it in place. Um, and it's really, it's been upholstered. So, and again, you can see these kind of compressive moments in the centre, uh, almost acting as columns. And as it opens out, um, you can see these are the moments that are kind of leaning back. Is that rain? Oh well, now you can't go anywhere. <laughs> um, and yeah, a few more images. So, moving on, um, this is a kind of much cruder project. It was really looking at a screen between in a green in a in the fashion school between the green room and the prep area and the kind of multi-purpose space and the catwalk that happens. So there was a whole lot of um, you know mechanical ducting and electrical services that needed to. Um, that was sort of low on the ceiling, so we had to avoid that. So again, Pleat does that really well. It um, allows you to move things apart so it sort of looks purposeful and you're not cutting holes in things. Um, it, it is supported on a frame, which we didn't hide. And the result was um, a fairly simple heaps of fabric, but quite an effective backdrop to all the servicing that was happening behind. And the detailing is kind of unusual because we need, the pleats don't really want to stay in position as they drop. So we needed to have a couple of support, um, horizontal supports in order to um, uh, be able to freeze it uh, in, in its kind of motion. So these kinds of strange details are spacing the pleats. So it, on the one hand, it sort of looks effortless but actually there's a lot of fussing around to make sure that they're not moving anywhere and that's it in action. Um, so moving on uh, away from pleats looking at so on the one hand you've got the really rich um, techniques that fashion and textile or fashion uses and that's a pleats a really good example of that but we also um, can look at the fabrication technologies that uh, are available in textile design and fashion design. So whole garment knitting, it's been around for quite a while. It works on set templates and it's seamless. So some of your sweaters or jumpers that you're wearing or your socks, they're 3D knitted. So you can, if you have a look, if there's no seam, you've got a Shimaseki 
because I think they're the only ones who really do this, whole garment um, machine. So the challenge is with these machines is they're closed loop. They're not like you can just feed in a strange set of shapes and it'll um, print it out. They work on templates. So you can muck around with a template. You could cut the fingers off or you could make this wider. But it's all um, pretty set. So you can make mini garments, but trying to put a sleeve, you know, trying to make a sleeve three times as large as the torso is not so easy. And it's not so easy to kind of do abstract shapes with the machine. Um, so this was um, a render that we did for the Sampling the Future exhibition. I'm not sure some people may have seen that. And the challenge here was, or what we were trying to show is, that you can translate an architectural form into, um, into the knitting language and be able to produce these kind of skins. So then going back and thinking about um, Dyneema yarns and these sophisticated um, fibres that textile design is so great at producing. Uh, also, you know, now there's so many other things. There's, you know, um, materials that absorb light and give them off during the night. There's solar, solar beading that is so fine that can harvest energy. So you suddenly you've got this world of amazing technology, but architecture is pretty dumb. Uh, it's still kind of stuck with, you know, the standard set of materials. So, and that's largely to do with with making stuff. Like we just don't have that translation. So this is all an attempt to kind of utilise readily available technologies um, that do, like you know, industrial machinery is is incredibly reliable, um, and really is 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 quite an amazingly fast has a fast production um, kind of time frame. So looking at the coding, the main issue is, as you can maybe tell, uh, there's no scale. So fashion and textiles, it's one-to-one, -one, whereas architecture, students know like you're dealing with a lot of scales. You would never ever see a one-to-one -one until it's actually on site. You might do a prototype of a, of a connection but you would never um, really produce a one-to-one. -one. Whereas fashion text, that's what they do. They do um, mock-ups or maquettes or um, they test it out with different materials, but they're working at a one-to-one -one scale. So the language of the Shimaseki is not designed for... Um, it doesn't have a kind of millimetre scale. You can see in the controls, there's a range of stitches there's a bit of a close-up. Uh, but the, this grid is not a scaled grid. So how do you get the scale of a drawing translated into um, the machine, the machinery's language? The coding is quite interesting. You know, these little moments are changing directions. They're telling you, you know, the, um, how to finish the edge so it doesn't fray, uh, the different stitching techniques. So. There was a lot of trial and error. Uh, you can see on the left, Jenny sort of had a rough idea of what it might look like, but it was dimensionally completely incorrect. And so we struggled with um, kind of getting it to fit in to the, the form. So 
the way it was made, we had these ribs that we um, formed. So they were, they were a fixed, they're not a flexible um, structure. They're a fixed shape and they're dictating and tensioning the shape. Um, and so you can see if the form is slightly off, uh, you're getting this kind of droopiness or floppiness. Uh, so it had to be quite accurate. I mean, this was sort of my naivety because I just assumed, you know, like you can buy a size. Most people can fit into a range of sizes, you know, might be more snug than other sizes, but, you know, there's a bit of flexibility with knits, but actually, no, it's, <laughs> there's not. Um, there has to be uh, some kind of uh, dimensional um, accuracy in order to make an architecture. So we did sort of half scales and you can see that once we understood the pixel versus the millimetre, it was quite um, seamless uh, to create these larger objects. That's it. We don't, we don't actually stand in front of the machine, but this was some photography for the event. <laughs> Um, and, yeah, so these were quite large. They were over three metres high um, and about 1,200 wide. And there was a central structure in there that then had spokes kind of suspending it. So it's a sort of, it's a, tensions, um, a tension structure. So you can see the kind of bent timber coming through there. That's covered with a sock and then we interwove um, or stitched using tubing. Pretty crude, like in order to understand how big things were, we had to weigh the fabric and the, the fibre in order to order the um, actual fibres. And that's, um, that's it in production at RMIT. And, you know, everything has to be customised. The end details, these were, you know, wet, wet cut, steel pieces so you once you're out of the discipline of architecture you're really on your own uh, and that's it installed looks a bit like I mean we used high-vis fabric so it does look a bit like a render um, and then we went even larger uh, out in Fed Square uh, so I guess you might you know, what are we doing? Like, why are we doing that? So one is to demonstrate the translation between um, an architectural model and a digital model. And the other one is looking at this wicked problem that we all have in that the city is built, but yet we've got climate change hitting us straight in the face. There's now a less and less appetite to demolish. Um, Sydney now, there's uh, a kind of penalty, quite a hefty penalty to demolish, so they want retrofit. So is there a way of creating custom lightweight skins that are going to use these um, high-tech fibres that are readily available in, in the land of the textile and that can support things like, you know, solar harvesting, uh, green growth. Um, so just uh, a little bit of um, what we're kind of working on as well. Uh, we're looking at a sort of pocket structure that can actually house planting. This is a sort of an interior little installation that we're currently working on. Um, pretty fun. Um, as a way to, you know, create discrete elements. So no longer trying to show, show off at how we can make big stuff. 
that how we can make big stuff, which is an accumulation of small stuff. Um, so we keep going and uh, a knitted ceiling. So again, uh, this was an issue around having some acoustic ab sound absorption uh, for student areas at RMIT. So we were looking at how can we create um, these sort of bulbs that would house acoustic absorbing materials that would also look kind of cool um, and the many iterations and then as it comes off the knitting bed the difficulty with this one is is how you actually have this webbing in between the forms these are embedded th these are tubes so that's where the structure sits through um, they're they're, that's the sort of skin, I guess. Um, and then, of course, that's creating a form. So that's a double-sided uh, element. Um, so then looking at... Uh, this was a kind of an earlier project, but just to show you, I guess, a little bit about um, what these high-tech fibres can do. This is photo, uh, um, electroluminescence. So this absorbs light during the day and then gives it off uh, when there's no light. There's a lot of examples of this. I think you can probably see them in exit signs. They're often on bikes. They're sort of um, not reflective, but they glow. And RMIT had um, Professor Man Mannering who had developed a longer life um, glow technology. So using nanoparticles, he was able to extend the life of these glow materials. You probably have played with them, like the little stars that you stick on the ceiling of kids' bedrooms. They don't last that long, um, so the length of time is kind of useless. But with this new advancement, the smallness of the particle also means that you can embed it in fibres. So suddenly we have the ability to knit. Uh, so this again was a demonstration showing um, how we might think about these things for you know, lighting maybe urban spaces uh, that really are perhaps a bit, you know, like, um, that's it during when it's on and off. Uh, so, yeah, spaces that are under bridges, under um, train stations that need some sort of illumination, but obviously we don't want to use um, electricity if we can avoid it. Um, and then just to end, I'm actually pretty fast. It's supposed to be an hour and it's only half an hour. Um, this was just when we, I was working with Russia Porn um, before uh, the waffle. Well, the waffle was always around with Russia Porn's work. I'm sure you've seen it. This was an idea of how can you um, uh, make a whole piece with the knitting machine that then kind of does what this does. But you can see in this one, there's strips, uh, strips of um, fabric that's been sewn together to create a waffle. In this case, we would have like one meter wide strips that would have the colors embedded um, and the uh, finishing. So it just could come up and then be strung in place. Uh, fortunately, that didn't make it, but anyway. Um, and I guess this is probably one of the last things. So I, the talk is really trying to just show you when you start thinking about lightweight materials and you start looking at um, fashion and textile designs, 
there's a whole lot of techniques and um, materials and technologies that can all be um, worked through in architecture. And this was a project with Creature Technologies um, before COVID hit. Um, these guys do those enormous animatronics uh, of dinosaurs uh, that move. And they're really advanced. Like they've got a workshop down, I mean, a massive factory down in Port Melbourne. Uh, they ship these things all around the world. But most of it's digital. Their robotics is unbelievably advanced. But the making of the skin is incredibly manual. So they do half-scale models. Um, they, do one to, they start with a one to five. They blow it up to one to two. And then they make the full thing. And they custom make the fabrics... Um, as well, so they look all scaly. But again, it's an incredibly laborious, it's a really like a traditional um, atelier, uh, which, you know, maps out um, the, the patterning of the figure. Uh, and then there's somebody kind of sewing it together quite laboriously. So <clears throat> part of the challenge was to unroll, to develop a way of unrolling the geometry such that it becomes something that can be used. So typically, and students would know this when they're using Rhino, when you unroll uh, in Rhino, when it's a complex form, you get miles and miles and miles and miles and miles of complex kind of ribbon-like structure, which is actually impossible to re-stitch together. The other issue is that Rhino's cheeky in that it stretches it. So you might, um, and this is an example of it stretching. So it's funny because when we showed, this is a kind of a Rhino unroll, that um, the, the fabric fabrication people, or the seamstresses for want of a better term, could immediately see that the shape of that animal had been stretched. So it's no good, it's not useful. So the challenge was how do you actually unroll this so that it's not thousands of ribbons, but that it's um, able to be uh, reconstructed in a fairly simple way. Um, and so we were looking at graphing, which you know, it's, it's not something you really wanna hear about, but it is a way of creating chunks or sections of unroll that are much easier to control um, and you know again translating the sort of architectural knowledge through to a fashion and then on from there well there you go compressed <laughs> thank you everybody Do you guys want to ask some questions? Anyone have any questions? Yes. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I've just got a question about the solar harvesting yes. methods that you mentioned. Yes. Are there any companies in Melbourne that are actually... Because I Sorry, I just got, got in here late, so I didn't hear the whole um, talk. That's okay. Uh, are there any companies in Melbourne that are using that technology like on a commercial level? Not that I know of. These are Japanese. Okay. They do have flexible solar cells that sometimes you've seen in um, 
military purposes that are on the side of tents, uh, they're only, they don't last that long. They're a temporary measure. But, um, yeah, there's a Japanese company that... They're like solar beads and they're kind of embedded, but not yet. Anyone else have a question? Anyone in fashion design here? No? Architects? Maybe. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> Hi there. My background's in visual arts and in oh, yeah. architecture. And um, so I was interested earlier, you, you were talking at the beginning of your talk, you talked about um, this, those floppy structures as being the feminization of structure. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that. Yeah. Um, I guess in thinking about your talk before I came, um, you know, and something I think about more often is how masculine and how, you know, most, most architecture is very solid, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And in the cityscapes, there's a lot of very tall, erect buildings, etc. Yep. And so I was, you know, I was curious to, to to come and to find out how much your, um, in terms of framing floppy architecture, in terms of gender politics and how that relates to architecture, if that comes into your thinking at all. Yeah, I mean, I probably, I mean, I'm. I'm not completely over gender politics, um, but I definitely feel like it is a completely different way of thinking about these kinds of, um, I suppose, urges to build big, tall things. When you're looking at fine structure, but lots of it, you're suddenly looking at more intimate spaces because um, even though large spans feel like there's the architecture has disappeared, or that's kind of maybe the intent. We all know that's actually not the case. So by having lots of finer structure that maybe defines space a little bit more, um, that you have to walk around or walk through, I think is a kind of really different way, and it is a bit of a feminine way of thinking about things. Also just looking at open plan. I mean, open plan doesn't really work because Acoustically, it's horrific. Um, functionally, it's very strange. Uh, so what you end up happening, what ends up happening, is people start nesting, creating their own barriers. The design hub's a perfect example of it being refit um, with a whole range of partitions, of meeting rooms, of so um, that sort of idea of having big spans for free space, I think, is kind of a misnomer. Uh, so I think that, and when Russia Porn was here, we were talking about that, and it's sort of a, it feels like a very natural uh, way of thinking about things. I think, like f for for a woman, I mean, shouldn't say that, but um, I guess we both we both gravitate to that kind of light lightness. Yeah, it's interesting. I probably should delve a bit more into into that. It's a good discussion. Yes. The lady with the pink bag. 
retro fish. You know, have you got any leads on that? Of Which places? one? You know, the green wall potential uh, draped over the existing building that you yes. showed? Any good uh, real leads on that? Yeah. Well, I mean, we are developing something with um, the um, Singapore University of Technology who have really kind of the, I guess, the digital power. We're really good at making things at RMIT. We, they don't care if we jump on, an architect jumps on a kneading machine. Like, they're like, yep, go for it. When you, their university, it seems like you need heaps of technicians to get involved. We're pretty loose like that. So the idea is that um, we want to kind of model a facade, look at the curtain wall structure and then figure out ways of plugging into it and then really just making stuff. So, yeah, it's still in its very early stages, but it feels like, um, you know, it could, could be a goer. You're an architect, do you reckon? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, also, I mean, look, planting of facades is not that easy and we've all seen those kind of very thick um, green green facades that it seems like they're, you know, kind of designed into the building where there's no windows or, you know, there can't be any windows. So it could be a way to kind of create a lighter green. doesn't have to have, you know, monsteria falling out of it. It could be a much finer material. A much finer growing material. Um, what's something that you wish you could experiment with but seems really impossible to do and achieve? Um, what would that be? I mean, I think I would like to get my hands on some more high-tech fibres, like the solar, the solar beads. Um, that would be really great, or even even phase change uh, materials that are, you know, in fibres or, you know, sensory. So some of that really high tech stuff would be really terrific. Um, yeah, I think good question. Yes. Um, as a as a landscape architect or in training. Um, I'm just I'm putting it just a Sorry, yeah, is that better? Perfect. Um, yep. As a landscape architect in training, um, we're always looking at ways of doing planting, but um, is there a way of pumping water through the veins so that it becomes like a, a skin or um, a way of heating and cooling a space that's non-obtrusive? So can you just repeat that? Is there a way of... Of heating and cooling space through, you, through pumping water yeah. Um, that's because it would be so non-obtrusive. It yeah. would be something that would be really interesting. Yeah. Well, that's a really interesting idea. I mean, we often think, like, irrigation is really just a tube with holes in it. Um, the knitting machines have the ability to take on a certain thickness, so you could easily embed. And the thing about the, the thing about knitting is it doesn't break a fibre, so it's looping a fibre. So you know, normally with tubular structures, if you squeeze them, obviously you're going to stop. But you could do quite a loose knit, um, 
a, quite a loose knit and take quite a fine tube. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's it's a really great idea. And it also would be really um, kind of effective. And as a landscaper, um, architect, you would understand, like, there's lots of things that grow that don't need to have heaps of soil. So, I mean, air plants, these are things that don't don't have soil. So it's it all seems quite possible, yeah. Always looking for collaborations, by the way. <laughs> well, I think that's it. It's a bit of an early end. Um, thanks, everybody, for coming. I really appreciate it. And, um, yeah, look forward to meeting some of you if you're hanging around for a wine. <laughs> See you. Thank you. You're listening to an Empavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.